Amen. Well, good morning. We're in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, where Boaz becomes Bay. The romance of redemption continues, and here we have a climactic turning point. But first, where have we been? If you haven't been with us, we've been in Ruth chapter 1 and chapter 2 the last couple weeks, and we see in chapter 1, Elimelech leads his family away from the presence of God, has sons that disobey God's law and marries Moabite women. These were not good decisions, but as we saw, the Lord can work through our bad decisions, right? Our dumb decisions are not determinative for our destiny. Our failures aren't final when God's on the throne. And then all three of these men die and they leave Naomi without a husband, without sons. She thinks she is empty, but we know better. She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. But as we've already seen, Naomi had become short-sighted. She was no doubt experiencing some incredible trials, but we're wrongly interpreting the trials to think God is against me. And we're always doing that too, friends. We're always interpreting life, always interpreting what's happening to us. And the question is, will we have self-centered lenses like Naomi or will we have the spectacles of scripture and know that God's at work? That's what Naomi needed. Naomi needed a biblical backbone. She needed the spectacles of scripture to interpret her trials. She needed stories like the story of Joseph down in her bones. Some of y'all are reading the story of Joseph right now with the F-260 plan. If not, you will next year. Remember that? Several parallels actually in the story of Joseph and the story of Ruth. They're both taken to a foreign land. Famine threatens their lives. Famine threatens their family's lives. And therefore, the family line that would ultimately produce the Messiah. Joseph goes through a severe trial. But God sends the famine for his good purposes. In fact, the psalmist tells us that in Psalm 105. We read this. Speaking of God, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke... All supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God is the one who summoned the famine. He's the one who broke the supply of bread. Our God is sovereign. He's on the throne. And he meant this for good. And that's exactly what we're going to read next week in Genesis. If you're reading the F260 plan, Joseph, at the end of a long, hard trial, the Lord raises him up and his brothers finally come. And he says, you meant evil against me through all that happened. God meant good through all that happens. He's sovereign and he is good. Naomi had lost sight of that. We so easily lose sight of that. He is the one who lays the stumbling blocks and then turns them into stepping stones for our journey to life. But not Naomi. Instead, she's despairing. She sees no stepping stones. Her name tag, remember, is bitter, frowny face. And she thinks she's alone, but we know she is far from alone. God's at work. Ruth had been converted from serving the God of Chemosh and is now with her. And let's not just skip past how significant this is. Remember, I told you in the first week, Moab was the enemy of Israel. Moab was the last place you wanted to go as a child of God. Moab was cursed by God. But here you have God saving a Moabite which is a preview of the coming kingdom that Jesus would ultimately bring. Back in the Old Covenant, God had a national people. It was Israel. Others were enemies. But in the kingdom Jesus would bring in the New Covenant, every nation 
is welcome to the banquet table of the redeemed. It's an international family of faith. And that was always his goal, right? That's why he formed his people, was ultimately to form an international people. When he called out Abram out of darkness, Genesis chapter 12, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a huge family. And through you, I am going to bless all nations of the world. That was always God's intention. And here, with the saving of Ruth the Moabite, that the author wants to remind us again and again and again, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, there's a preview of the coming kingdom and last week we saw in story form the beautiful doctrine of God's providence God orchestrating history God working out his plan Ephesians 1:11. he works all things according to the counsel of his will history is his story and so we saw God the master conductor orchestrating his plan of redemption through the events of Ruth. They head back to Bethlehem after God visits his people. There's bread again in the house of bread, and so they go back. And it just so happens it's the time of the barley harvest. And it just so happens that Ruth gleans in the field, the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And it just so happens that Boaz comes home, comes to this field where she is. And if you remember, they have this romantic meal of roasted grain together. Boaz, the godly Israelite, provides for Ruth, the dumpster-diving Moabite. And then it ends. Chapter 2 ends with a cliffhanger. So here we are, chapter 3. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 28. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that pew Bible with you. And let's read all of Ruth, chapter 3 together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet... There is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. 
And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. And he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So once again, we have three scenes. We've had three scenes in every chapter, and here we have the scene with Naomi's plan, and then we have the scene with the threshing floor, and then we have the scene with Ruth returning back to Naomi. And so scene one is Naomi's plan here in these first five verses. Look again at chapter three, verse one. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So Naomi's probably a bit befuddled, right? This is at the end of the harvest. Ruth has been working hard for two months at least. And there was, it's about to be over. Payday's happening, it's all about to be done. And there would be a succession of regular contact between Ruth and Boaz. And there's been really no long-term process. They were probably doing just fine with food. Ruth's been busting it. She's been working. They probably have a full pantry. But that would eventually run out. Naomi, again, she's thinking long term. So she's got an idea. She says, I'm concerned about you, Ruth. And she probably is. But she's also thinking about long term plans. Again, Ruth's probably focused on grain. Naomi's thinking grandbabies. So he reminds her, is not Boaz our relative? And here, remember from last week, the law of leveret marriage. The narrator here is reminding us that Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. He repeats that a few times, of the clan of Elimelech. And so one of the redeemers, that's the law of lever at marriage, where if you had a relative that was around and, and the brother passed away, well, it was his responsibility, according to the law of God, to come and marry the widow if there was available, if there was right resources and resolve, and take care of the widow and her property. It was a way that the redeemer would maintain the clan's inheritance keeping it intact. And so Naomi knows and Naomi tells Ruth, hey, he's a redeemer. He can redeem us. He can rescue us. He can provide for us. So Naomi reminds Ruth and knows that tonight's payday, he's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, she tells her. So the harvest is over and the threshing floor is where you would take grain and you would separate it from the husk. Animals would tromp over it and then you would take that mixture and you would throw it up in the air out into the wind and the chaff would blow away and the heavy grain would fall down and then you would gather it up and then you would guard it. Look at verse 3. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This sure seems shady. This is questionable advice at best. But... Naomi's given questionable advice before, hasn't she? You remember what had happened. She's going back to the promised land, and she tells these two daughters-in-law, go back to Moab. Rather than telling them, come with me, come and join the people of God in the presence of God, she says, no, you stay, and you stay with your paganism and your pagan land. That's bad advice. That's anti-evangelism. And then her sons 
explicitly break God's law and marry foreign women. We saw that Naomi is thought God's against her. And so this questionable advice from Naomi should not be that surprising. This is risque. We don't use this scene for the Baptist Sunday School flannel graph, do we? <laughs> Naomi says, wash yourself, anoint yourself, extreme Moab, makeover Moabite edition. But, and this is important, this is not just Naomi telling Ruth to get pretty. It's more than that. We actually have very similar language here. Wash, anoint, clothe, used over in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Maybe you remember the story of David and Bathsheba. David's son from Bathsheba got sick. And during this time of sickness, he was praying and it was a time of mourning. And then he comes and he gets word that the child has died and he washes himself, anoints himself, puts on his garments, signifying that the time of mourning is over. He was in a time of mourning and now it's over. Let me read 2 Samuel 12, 20. David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. There's very similar language. Washed, anointed, clothing. And this was signifying he's moving on. His time of mourning is over. Ruth had been in a time of mourning. She had lost her father-in-law. She had lost her husband. She was mourning. But now, that time of mourning is over. And so with this washing and anointing and clothing, what is she saying to Boaz is, I am now a demonstrable free agent. So Naomi says, wash up, put on some Chanel, wait till Boaz is eaten, drank, watch where he lays. That's really important. You don't want to lay down to the wrong dude's feet. Keep your eye on him. That's not going to go well with my plan. And then uncover his feet and join him. And so she goes to his feet, which is obviously this lowly place. She doesn't go by his side. Here she is a petitioner. And this may have been this ancient practice of requesting for a hand in marriage. It may have been, but the historical data for that is slim to none. So listen, this story is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is how it went down, not how it ought to go down. Ruth 3 is not about how to find a spouse. <laughs> Naomi's advice is questionable. Hopefully, assuming the best here, Naomi trusts the character of Boaz. She says, he'll tell you what to do. Maybe she's praying for their purity in it all. We don't know. But that moves us to the second scene, the threshing floor. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So Ruth executes the plan Again, she's got initiative. She trusted her mother-in-law. She loved her mother-in-law. And so here she goes. Harvest is over. The grain is being harvested at the threshing floor. Again, it's payday after months of work. This is a time of celebration. For example, let me read to you another passage in Isaiah 9 that speaks about this time. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a time of joy and rejoicing. So they eat well. Boaz has had his meal. 
He's had his wine. He's in a good mood. He's in good spirits. He's not drunk, which is clearly condemned in Scripture. But as Psalm 104 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. Boaz is well-fed. His heart is glad. Apparently the norm was for landowners to sleep by their goods. And so Boaz lays down at the end of the heap of grain. And Ruth had to just be hiding somewhere watching this whole scene, spying on the activities from behind a bush or something. And then she comes in softly. She uncovers his feet and she lays down. And then around midnight, he wakes up, abruptly wakes up. Maybe he was having one of those dreams, you know, where you're falling or maybe where you go to school having forgotten to put on your pants. We don't know. But he wakes up and he's startled and he smells something sweet. Chanel has filled the threshing floor, <laughs> which had to be a marked contrast to the sweat and the animals. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Some rabbis don't know what to do with this story, and they said that he woke up not because of Ruth, but because it was time to go study Torah. Unlikely. Look at verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness, there's that word hesed again, greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So Ruth petitions Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. Here she basically proposes. This same imagery is used in Ezekiel 16 where the Lord takes on his faithless bride, his people. Let me read Ezekiel 16, 8. The Lord says, when I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so with this, this request, this petition of symbolism, Ruth is basically saying, Bo, put a ring on it. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. Look back at verse 212, though. There's an imagery here that she's alluding to. Look at Ruth 2.12. Boaz had said, the Lord, to Ruth, Boaz had, Boaz had said, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now she's saying to Boaz, let me take refuge under your wings. Ruth had taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh, and now she's saying the same thing to Boaz, saying, now you, as a servant of Yahweh, offer refuge for me. Bring me under your care. You be the provision for me. If she had a New Testament, she would have probably quoted James too. Don't just talk the talk. Put your money where your mouth is. Don't say, hey, go, warm, go home, be warm, and be filled without giving me what I need. What good is that? Faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. So Boaz, come, be the agent of your God for me. So she basically says, put a ring on it because for you are a redeemer. Well, well, well. Ruth had learned a little bit of Israelite theology. She understood now the law of leveret marriage. And Boaz seemed surprised. May you be blessed. You've been so kind. Maybe he thought he was too old. Maybe he thought she was out of his league. We don't know. Look at verse 11, chapter 3. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy 
woman. Once again, the reputation of Ruth precedes her. All the townsmen know she is a worthy woman. This is actually the same adjective that was used of Boaz in Ruth chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, a worthy man. And now we learn that Ruth was known as a worthy woman. She is able, she is efficient, she is industrious, she is of noble character, she is virtuous, she is excellent. In fact, this is the same word. This word's not used very often, especially of women in the Old Testament, but it's also used in the book of Proverbs chapter 31. If you want to turn over there, keep your finger in Ruth. Proverbs 31, such a wonderful chapter. I want to read a good chunk of it. Starts in cha- uh, verse 10, Proverbs 31, 10. An excellent wife who can find. That word excellent is the same word used here in Ruth, chapter 2, 1 and three eleven for worthy. A worthy wife who can find. And just notice the par- parallels as we read this description of an excellent wife with what we've seen with Ruth. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen and garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, let her works praise her in the gates. The worthy woman. I just got to say public, I can't help but think of the embodiment of Alicia White of this Proverbs 31 woman. And this is Ruth. Ruth is a bride worth winning. Proverbs 12 uses the same word. An excellent, there it is, worthy. A worthy wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So she's a worthy woman. She is a woman of noble character and everybody knows it. And so young ladies... Single ladies, maybe ladies that want to be married or aspire to marriage one day, let me encourage you to work on your character. Aspire to be a worthy woman. Live your life for the glory of God. Live in such a way that you gain a reputation for being 
virtuous. Work on godliness, on holiness, on character. Pursue the Lord. Don't pursue external beauty. Pursue the beauty that matters. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So focus on character and godliness like we see in Ruth. Look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Last week I mentioned that a redeemer had to have the right, had to have the resources, and then the resolve. Well, apparently did not have, Boaz didn't have the right, apparently. There was some next of kin that had prior right to marry the woman. So there was this due order to be honored. And just think, remember the context here. Just think of how honorable Boaz is here. Think of the example we find in Boaz. He could have easily taken advantage of this vulnerable young woman. Just think of the situation at night. No one around. Under the stars, Marvin Gaye playing in the background. <laughs> Maybe not. Wine, non-alcoholic, of course. A woman in his sheets, and the first thing he considers is the law of God. There is someone else in line before I take initiative here. I want to honor you, and I want to honor God. There is a next of kin before me. How countercultural. Remember in this day, right at the time of the judges, where everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Immorality and compromise abounded. It's much like today. If it feels good, do it. Not Boaz. Rather than taking advantage of this vulnerable woman, he honors her as a sister. 1 Timothy 5.2, treat younger women as sisters with all purity. Boaz was a worthy man. He wanted to honor this widow, but more importantly, he wanted to honor his God. Even though he was alone in the dark, he knew that the eyes of the Lord were upon him. He knew that he was not alone. No one is ever alone. Job 31, the Lord sees your ways and numbers your steps. Jeremiah 16, 17, the Lord says, my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his side, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knew that though no human being was aware, the eyes of his Lord were upon him, and he was going to honor him. Oh, how would we live and act and think differently if we operated as if the eyes of the Lord were upon us at all times? Because brothers and sisters, they are. And so Boaz honors God just instinctually. In the heat of the moment, he glorifies God. How do you get to a place like that? It's not in us by nature. It's certainly not by luck. It comes by sweat. It comes by blood. It comes by taking up our cross every day, pursuing the Lord daily so that in the moment of temptation, we can honor him. No one drifts into this kind of holiness. 
comes from a life spent reading and hearing and meditating and memorizing the Word of God, a life transformed by a renewed mind and leading to a commitment to honor God in all of life when no one but Him is looking, an assurance that His ways are best. And so man does Boaz show remarkable self-control and integrity here. He glorifies God. Jonathan Edwards, when he was just a teenager, he wrote this little book called Resolutions. We read it every year in January, and he, one of his goals goes like this. He's 17 years old, and he writes, Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Boaz had made some commitment like that, clearly. When our lives are committed to him, we want to honor him. We want to glorify him. Whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, we will then instinctually honor God in situations such as this, just like we see in Boaz. Then we have the third scene. Back to Naomi. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. So Boaz continues to protect her. Not going to go out at night where she might be harmed. And she needs to get out of there before anyone else wakes up. No walk of shame. No, no apparent walk of shame for Ruth. Boaz protects her purity and then protects her reputation. And then provides for her. He loads her up with barley yet again, six measures, which would have been about 80, 90 pounds. Twice the amount she had had before. So Boaz, I think, is sending a little hat tip to Naomi. Here you go, mother-in-law, I see you. I'll take care of it. Give me time. Look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. I mean, can you imagine how anxious Naomi, Naomi had been? Probably didn't sleep a wink. Ruth comes home, and she asks how it went. A more rigid translation would be, Who are you, my daughter? Not just how did you fare, but who are you? I like the way King Jimmy puts it. Who art thou, my daughter? Are you still the widow of old sickly Malon? Are you the fiance of Boaz the strong? Who are you? Are you Miss Boaz? And Ruth, she doesn't have a ring to flash, but she did have 90 pounds of barley. And she says, hey, Boaz said to me, you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Again, that should ring a bell. Flip over to Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. Naomi says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's empty days are over. The Lord is providing for his daughter through Boaz. Naomi should have just hung on. Trust the Lord. He will provide. Hang on to what you know is true in the light. When you're in the dark, he may not call when you come, but he's always on time. Look at verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, 
until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. Naomi's like, I think he's motivated. I think he'll figure it out. Yet another cliffhanger. We have to wait till chapter 4 to see if Boaz has the right of the kinsman redeemer. But before then, I want us to close out. Just consider four brief applications we learned from Ruth chapter 3. First, we just see again the way the Lord works. We see the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. He never does things the way we would expect. Here we have an Israelite leaving Bethlehem, going to Moab, Israelites marrying pagan women. This is all the wrong way to go about it. A woman here proposing to a man instead of a man to a woman, a younger woman at that to an older man, a field gleaner to the field owner, an alien to a native, poor to rich. And that's just the way the Lord works. His way up is down. The way you become great in the kingdom of God is to descend into greatness. The first will be last. The last will be first. The second thing we learn again is just to be an action-oriented Christian. Notice how active these people are in this book. Ruth, Naomi, they're on the move. They're getting to work. And God often works through our work. And so don't be prayerful and passive. Be prayerful and active. And that's what we really see all through the Bible. We see that in the book of Acts with the apostles. You rarely see them sitting around just praying. They're praying and they're going. They're getting going. And the Lord opens doors and closes doors. And here we see Ruth being faithful. Boaz being faithful. Naomi getting on it, making a plan, and God working his will through his people. So Ruth has been working day after day after day, the whole harvest, until we get to this scene. And so, brothers and sisters, do your part. Actively and prayerfully serve the Lord. Get busy for him. You never know what God might do through your faithfulness. And then third, we learn about purity. Singles and young people learn from Boaz here. Any type of sexual immorality is just not an option for followers of Jesus. It's just not an option. In fact, the warnings of Scripture when it comes to this sin are loud and explicit. And there's this term often used, and it's the term sexual immorality. It's the word where we get, it's the word porneia should sound familiar. It's this all-encompassing term. And I, I bring this up because nowadays there are, being, there are people defining things differently and saying, well, we're not doing that, we're just doing this. This is a broad term encompassing any and all types of sexual immorality. Learn from Boaz here. The warnings of Scripture are severe. We don't have time to go there, but maybe you should jot down Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. Jot down in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And it says, for those, doesn't matter what they say with their mouth, those who consistently practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. This is nothing to toy with, young people. This is serious. The consequences could not be more severe. So as you begin to date, court, have firm boundaries for the sake of one another, but especially to honor the Lord. This isn't prescriptive, descriptive, but Alicia and I, we didn't even kiss till our wedding day, and it was glorious. I'm so glad we did that. Not saying you need to do that, but you do need to have clear boundaries in your relationships so that you will honor God like Boaz honored the Lord. Men in particular, even in a dating relationship, 
If you get married, you're going to be the head of your house. You're to lead your wife spiritually. And so as you date, lead spiritually. Men, you have the responsibility. Some of you, if you're dating and there is this type of thing happening, you are responsible. And the call for you today is to turn from the sin, start honoring that woman, and start honoring the Lord. Guard her purity like Boaz guards the purity of Ruth. Even in a tempting environment, but they remain pure. Four things we see in Boaz a picture of the ultimate redeemer. Boaz was a kinsman. The son of God becomes a man, a kinsman. Like us, becomes like one of us. Boaz wasn't obligated to save those women. Jesus isn't obligated to save us, but out of loving kindness, out of hesed, out of faithfulness, he does. These women can save themselves and we can't save ourselves. All we bring to the equation of salvation is the need for salvation. Boaz satisfies the demands of the law. There might be one before me. Let's go to him first. There's a next of kin. Jesus perfectly keeps the law in our place. Boaz uses his own wealth to redeem them. Jesus gives up his wealth to redeem us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Boaz shares his kingdom, his wealth. He lavishes these ladies with favor. He invites them to sit at this table. And that's the story of eternity. Jesus and his bride, the church, the ultimate romance of redemption. Boaz physically redeems these women. Jesus spiritually redeems us, not temporarily, but for eternity. I mentioned redeemers. They need to have the right. They need to have the resources. They need to have the resolve. Jesus has the rights. He is the God-man. God become flesh, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death. He has every right to redeem. In fact, none but him can redeem. He has the resources again, live perfectly, perfectly righteous. And he credits us with righteousness if we trust in him. And he has the resolve. He became obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, we have every right and reason to glory in our ultimate redeemer.